Well, we've been in a series, as none of you are probably very surprised, on Ephesians. And I do not know if you've been enjoying this as much as I have, but I've been so enjoying this uh, series. I've not spent this much dedicated time on such a small portion of Scripture in a long time. And so it's been so fun for me to kind of dive through it and invest and to read and to research and let these verses soak into me. It's like every week, I kind of felt at the beginning, I was like, that's, well, that's message one, this is message two, kind of generally outlined it. But then as we started going, I was like, well, that's cool. That's cool. I didn't see that. And so it's been really fun to kind of take more time to parse these verses out. And I hope that it's been enjoyable to you, that God's been working in you. Last week, we talked about God's ultimate plan of uniting the cosmos, heavens and earth. This encompasses all creation, creature to creator, Jew to Gentile, or in other words, all of humanity, and, and after all of that, the very cosmos itself. Literally heaven and earth, these two spheres colliding together and coming, reconciling and becoming one. All things are coming together, reconciled, restored through and in Christ. In Matthew 28, 18, it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the scene in Narnia, if anybody is a Chronicles of Narnia fan, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan has been uh, murdered. He's been slayed. He's been set on the rock and killed by the witch. And the whole demonic tribe goes away celebrating. And the, the forces of good are thinking, this is it. Our answer is dead on the table. But in the morning, he's awake. He's alive. Aslan is on the move. This is the power of what we talked about last week is that, that God, Satan thought this was the winning blow. I'll kill him. I'll bleed him. I'll nail him to a cross. But it was that very act that gave Jesus the authority back that we had given away so recklessly. And it was that authority that he came and started moving heaven into, back into earth permanently. And wherever the cross goes, the will of God follows. You understand what I'm saying here today? He came and said, I have been given all authority. Jesus was restoring, setting right, bringing back us back into proximity and blessing with God. This first section today under your first points, I have a lot of random points today, so don't worry about that too much. But the first one is that this first section of verses 3 through 14 is God verbing out. Let that sink in for a second. God verbing out. If you go back through these few verses here, just 12 verses or whatever, and start highlighting all of the verbs, there's a ton of them. And so really quick, I just want to recap. Verse 3, he blesses us with every blessing of the Spirit. Verse 4, he chooses us. Verse 5, he predecides or predestines to adopt us. Verse 7, he purchases us our freedom. He forgives our sins. Verse 8, he showers us with kindness and wisdom and understanding on us. Verse 9, he reveals his mysterious plan to us. Verse 10, he's bringing everything together or gathering us all up together. Verse 11, again, he's chosen us in advance. And verse 13, he identifies us by giving us the Holy Spirit. Blessed, chosen, he predecided to adopt and to love us, purchased us, forgave us, showers us with kindness and wisdom and understanding, reveals mysteries to us, bringing us all together in unity, choosing us, identifying us as his own, and sending the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Can you just sit for just a second and realize that all of those things, God is verbing, he's doing all of this to you. He's already done it for you. You are the recipient of all of those things that just, I just read and talked through. God's done all those things for you. And what's our part in getting it? We have to work really hard. Beg for it. Pray night and day, sing songs, worship with your hands up, serve in kids' ministry, give money to the poor and homeless, do good works or spread the gospel? Not according to these verses. What's our response to God doing all of these things? Verse 11. Because we're united with Christ, we have received. Our part in that 
onslaught of work that's been done is to receive. This goes against the very American mindset, though, that we've been living in and brought up in. In a performance-driven culture, at its core, this, the idea of America was built on America, the land of opportunity, where anyone can become anything, from peasant to president, and pushes back on the idea of a free handout. Receiving is something that we honestly, as a culture, do very poorly. Entitlement is another issue, and that is a cultural moment we live in, too, where we have an entitled spirit in our culture right now. This feeling of that I deserve things or a forced greed. But the idea here is to receive, to be in need, unable to pay back, unworthy, undeserving, but given anyways, to receive and accept without greed. To receive and understand that we don't deserve it, that we can't earn it, that we're not entitled to it, but God gives it anyway. In college, we would do these leadership exercises. Amy and I were RAs, and so we, 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 were, we would uh, lead other kids and be in their lives, and we'd have to lead Bible studies and do these big events for our areas and stuff. And so they would do team-building exercises. And one of those exercises is that they would take your teams, you'd break out, and they would make a circle, and they would take one person at a time, and they put them in the middle of the circle. And then for like 30 or 45 seconds, your job was just to shower the best things that you could all over them. You're just supposed to speak blessing and how you like their hair and you like their smile and they make you laugh and just all the good things. And you know how hard that is? It's really easy to be the person on the outside of the circle saying all the good things. But you know how much if you let it penetrate your heart, it just breaks you down. To hear all of those good things spoken over you. We live in a culture that it's very, very, very difficult to receive good things. Even in the kingdom of God, we come with an expectation of uh, that we have to do something to get it back. But the idea here is that this is the idea of a parent with a child. It has a dirty diaper. And they come in and the child can't do anything to earn it. They can't do anything to pay it back. But the parent and love takes care of the mess. And the child just sits and receives. There's nothing that you can do in all of these verses to force God to pour these blessings out in your life. He did them all for you because you're united with Christ. And you received. That's kind of the direction that we're going today. Eugene Peterson, this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I believe it's worth it. In his book, Practice, Practice Resurrection, he says, Alongside the staggering revelation that God is actively involved within and overall, we are told in no uncertain terms that each of us is gener generously included in every aspect of God's activity. Not a single verb leaves us outside the action. We are not spectators to a grand cosmic show. We are in the show, but we are not running it. All of the conditions that make it possible for us to grow up to maturity, to the stature of Jesus Christ, are in place, even from before the foundation of the world. But this comprehensive involvement in this all but this comprehensive involvement in this all-encompassing action of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit does require that we develop skills and aptitudes in a way of participation that none of us, excepting infants, is very good at. I mean receptivity. Receive. That is our primary response if we are to find ourselves no longer lost in the cosmos, but home in it. Receive. That is our primary response. And so me thinking today just along the sermon is, this brings a question to my mind of how do we receive all of these things? All those things from verses 3 through 14, how do we receive? I believe that we, are, we do have a part in playing in, in receiving those blessings, but it's not in the ways that we're used to. A few weeks ago, I was trying to figure out who in here likes board games, and we talked about Settlers of Catan. And there's a, I hate that game. 
I love board games, but I don't like that board game because of the family I grew up with. Because my family takes more delight in making you lose than winning. And there's a very, very important concept in that game of trading. I'll give you two sheep if you give me one stone or one wheat for whatever, whatever wood. And my family would rather see you rot and burn than even get a little glimpse of moving forward. So I hate that game. But often we come to God with that same mentality. I will do this and you will do this for me. Maybe it comes in the form of, God, if you, if you do this for me, then I will blank. Show up in church. I'll serve. I, I'll read my Bible diligently. We think that this is a transactional experience with God. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours somehow. I don't know where God is. But how do we do that? And sometimes we come to God with this is that, uh, what do you want from me so I can receive the things that I want from you? But in the kingdom of God, God wants nothing from us <laughs> except all of us. You see, last week we talked about positioning our lives around the kingdom of God. Love the Lord God with everything you have, heart, soul, mind. All the other rules are tied up into these, this one commandment. If you do all of these things, Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again, sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. We are called to orient our time orient our lives, orient our actions and our bodies and our wills, our finances, our desires all around the kingdom of God because it has higher value in our life than anything else in life. Very simply put, from verses 5 and 11, it is uniting yourself with Christ. This is the promise of John 15. Remain in me, Jesus says, and I will remain in you. You do have a responsibility of your proximity to God. God will not force you to be in his presence. It is a practice, it is a way of life, it is a reorientating of life, reprioritizing life, to consistently be kingdom-minded. Because there's so many other things that want to crowd in and take your concern off of the kingdom of God and onto life instead. And so how do we receive all of these things? We position yourself for God to do the work in you. You don't have to work really hard. You don't have to make promises. All you have to do, all I have to do, is time and time again show up. And the Holy Spirit comes and does the things that Holy Spirit can do. But sometimes the challenge is that we try to do the things that God's supposed to do and try to make God do the thing we're supposed to do. I'll orchestrate all these things, God, if you just show up. But that's not how the kingdom of God comes forward. In Luke 10, 38 through 42, it's like iconic story, and it's just a few verses. I'm going to read it really quick. It says, As Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. In our life, in our discipleship to Jesus, Christianity is a call to prioritize and reprioritize the one thing that will shape our lives around the kingdom of God, even if it means stopping good things. I don't think what Martha was doing was bad. I just don't think it was the best thing. I think it was a good thing, but not a great thing. There's lots of things that we like to do for God, except the one thing that he calls us to do, which is obediently and consistently show up to receive from him. How to receive the blessings of God, the down payment of the Holy Spirit, the partial now and full future inheritance of the kingdom. We put ourselves in right position before God, which is uniting or remaining in Jesus. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. 
Position yourself in a place to receive. Going back to Ephesians, Ephesians verse 1, verse 3. All, I'm sorry, I've been saying 5, but it's 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we're united with Christ. And verse 11. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. Position yourself in a place to receive. Because blessing follows position. There's no magic way to make God bless you. But when you position yourself in a place to receive, God's blessings are able to come into your life. But here really lies the problem. We, we, get past, we get the mindset of receiving. We pass that up. We are ready for the treasure of heaven and the blessing of God, and we hope that his presence shows up. But we put up our expectations. The blessing of God has no responsibility to come like we want or how we want or how we expect. Honestly, it comes up often in ways we are not looking for. Maybe this is an example that you're familiar with. It's kind of an old one, but there's some younger people here that maybe have not heard before. There once was a man in a town that got hit by a tremendous flooding and hurricanes. The torrents of the rain were so bad the National Guard was dispatched to evacuate the town because the flooding was going to be so outrageous and so high. Going door to door, the responders came to a particular man's house and said, Sir, this town's going to be flooded soon. Come with us. He said, No, thank you. God will save me. A little while later, as the flood waters had raised a lot higher, a boat came down through the street. And it said, saw the man sitting on the upper floor of the balcony of his house, and they said again, Sir, the town's going to be flooded. Come with me. He said, No, thank you. My God will save me. The water, time more went by farther, and the water continued to rise, and eventually the man was forced on top of his roof. A helicopter circling, making one more sweep, said, Sir, come with us. And he said, No, thank you. My God will save me. The water is raised again, and the man next finds himself in the very kingdom of heaven. And he gets there, and he gets through the pearly gates, and he goes up to God, and he says, God! Where were you? I thought you were going to show up and save me. And God says, I did three times. I sent a man to your door. I sent a boat by your house. And I sent you a helicopter. This is a very, very stupid uh, hypothetical story that probably has lots of theological down points. But it really drives home the point today that I'm trying to make is that often we want God, but only how we expect him to show up. The Jews wanted a savior, but they wanted a warrior king on a war horse to relieve their oppression from Rome. Often we want God as a magic fix. We want him to come and to magically fill our bank accounts or fix our health condition or to do this thing, restore this relationship, and not do the actual work of showing up. We bring our expectations to the blessing of God. That's not our work, church. That's the work of God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. Our work is to remain in Him, which is honestly so much harder than working for the blessing that we want. I have this, honestly, many times when Amy and I, uh, I have this reoccurring thing is that when I get mad, when I get frustrated, when I, I just don't know how to handle life, I just go and I have to go and do things. And so if Amy is trying to tell me, man, I've had a really long day and I've, it's just been really overwhelming, really busy, and I just haven't had time to clean the house like I want to, or these things are stressing me out. And if I've had a long week, I, I just go into this work mode. I'm going to go work and work and work and work and get it done. And time and time again, we come back to the place where we're saying, that's not how I feel loved. I just wanted you to sit and to hear me. I didn't want you to go clean the dishes. And she thought, that makes me feel worse because I know you had a long day. But my mentality from birth is that what I've been grown up with is that you must work to earn a living. You must work to get what you receive. And so I think I have to go work really hard to receive the blessings of God. But he asks us to just show up. Remain in me and I'll remain in you. We want to live into the kingdom but not the kingdom of God. We want to live into the kingdom that we think it should be. But Jesus' prayer that he models to his disciples is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let there be no other name greater than your name. 
may your kingdom come by your will being done. God's kingdom is ushered into our realm, into earth, by God's rule or God's will being accomplished here on earth. Not by what we think it should be or how we want it to look. And it often just looks like maintaining a healthy relationship with Jesus. I want to evangelize. I want to bring my neighbors. I want to do all, see all these amazing, powerful works through me. The dead rise, the health sick, and all these things, which are good things, which could happen. But the first primary thing is showing up, remaining in Jesus. Positioning yourself in a place to receive from God. Here's this other illustration when Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of God. He says, here, here it is, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree and birds come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom of God is like a seed. That is not how I view the kingdom of God. When I think of the kingdom of God, and I think of this powerful, spiritual, invisible army ready to invade the places of darkness on earth. Yet time and time again, Jesus talks about being a tiny thing, planted, watered, nurtured. And over time, it grows and matures and invades all things and takes over all things. The tiniest little mustard seed, but eventually it will grow and take over. I don't know if you've ever done this with kids, but this summer Amy took the kids and they did a science experiment and they took all these little cups and filled them with dirt and put a different seed in each cup and they wrapped them in plastic and put them by the window. And just every few minutes the kids would come up to us and say, is there a plant in there yet? No. Every couple hours, is there a plant in there yet? And sometimes we come to God's blessing and God's kingdom like that. God, have you done it yet? God, have you done it yet? God, have you done it yet? It's like a seed. It takes time. There are things in our life that we want God to do right now, but perhaps God wants to do them over the course of your entire life. God's not very bothered by our time agenda or our schedule. Our work is to daily, consistently, and obediently, and intentionally position ourselves in small, repetitive works, insubstantial sometimes, they feel like, small acts of obedience in our mind, but they unite us with Christ, and God's Spirit might do the work that only the things the Spirit can do in our life. Blessing is a work of God, and positioning is ours to receive. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. This is really what we're trying to do here in Church on the Rock. We are determined to be a community who follows Jesus together. To be a people that finds way to connect to God and to each other. More than that, we're becoming and are in many ways a family all headed in the same direction. A people that values the kingdom of God and the works to do God's will here on earth. I'd like to take a little bit of time today to actually show you this and show you how this works in our church. And Randy, I believe we have that first slide up there you can put up there. There's really kind of three stages into coming into the life of our church and our community. And so these are the three here. Often it starts right here at step very one is that this may be, and I think there's even some people in the room today, this is your very first encounter with Church on the Rock. You've come to a Sunday morning service, or maybe you've came to, we had last week a couple that showed up that uh, had not been to our church, to a Tuesday night prayer gathering. Maybe you're coming to the meet and greet later. Maybe you encountered our church through an egg outreach or the door-to-door -door ministry or whatever. You've encountered Church on the Rock somehow, and you thought, mm, maybe I'll go check that out. And so you've been coming, and you've been a visitor often. And so you go to the next phase. And so maybe often how this has worked in our church is that you've encountered Jesus Christ for the very first time in section one. Your next step, you are qualified now for baptism, which asserts your faith in Jesus before 
everyone into yourself publicly. And so maybe it's baptism or Grow Steps 1 or Grow Steps 2, and those are really primers or basics to our church. 22 years of history and foundation of catching you up to what's going on and where we're at, our vision statement, our mission statement, all the ways to connect with our, this body. Or maybe just the next place for you is to be a midweek connect event where you send your kids to youth group, you come to prayer service, you go to the Bible study with Pastor Joe or a seasonal class that's going on. Sometimes we do the financial peace series or grief share or addiction classes or whatever. You come to a class. And so you've moved from step one to step two. And then the next step is really where we become family. You go through growth steps one, you go through growth steps two. And the next step that we as admins do is we place you under deacon care. Deacons for us is the pastoral care of this church. I can't get everywhere. Pastor Joe can't get everywhere. The pastoral staff can't get everywhere. And honestly, we don't want to. We have incredibly caring, gifted people, individuals in this church that care so much for you. And so we find those people, and once you've gone through these steps and you've moved into this family phase, we've put you under, as your primary care, a deacon. That's the person that will call you if you're feeling down. The person that will show up at the hospital or set up meal trains for you. They'll be there, check in on you, to pray with you. It's an incredible service and ministry. I, I've gotten so many good reports from our deacons, specifically Jason Rudance. I've heard so many things about Jason. He's like, so many people are like, I've been called by Jason like five times this last month. He dedicates so much of his time to taking care of people because he feels a calling to it. And so when you become family, you're placed under deacon care. You are now qualified for going through the membership class, which is the highest level of commitment in our church that allows you to vote on uh, and elect um, council members and board members and other things like that. Small groups or a serve team. Once you've gone through those first two steps, it's pushing you deeper into community. Randy, can you put that next slide up? Really what this is doing is that you're either, and these are not hard and fast labels, this is generally just to help us think through this, is that you have a visitor that's come and introduced to the church we get lots of visitors, Easter and Christmas service, ta families are in town just coming, but you're, you're, you have a church family, you're, you're not around, you're church shopping, whatever, but you're coming to visit. And then you want to get to know more about this church and how to invest and how to be a part of this body. Then you become an attender and you start going through the midweek things or the growth steps. And then the third part of that is that you are a participant. You are sowing back into this body. Because again, to reference the very beginning of today, this is not a show or a production. This is a way of life for us at Church on the Rock. And so you're called to participate in that. Nobody wants the family member that always shows up and is needy. You want the family member that you can always call on to say, hey, I need you to watch my dog. Or hey, can you watch my kids so I can go on a weekend trip to Portland? Thanks, Mom and Dad. I, I can't remember who it said. I think it was Pastor Eric. He said, who are the people that you can call to pick you up from the airport? Moving into layers of depth and community is we want to be known and to know each other. And so you can see those are kind of all consequential. They move forward into a de deepening life here in Church on the Rock. This all comes together, though, in life with COTR. These first things are steps, but this last one here is not a step. To be very blunt and honest with you, I heard this said another place, is that we have an agenda for your life, if you didn't know that. We actually have plans and want you to live your life in certain ways, and we're willing to be very upfront and honest with you about that. And so this, these four things are invitations to a commitment to do life here. And you can enter these four steps of following Jesus together to pursue the kingdom of God as a community here, to pursue God's will here in this moment in time at Church on the Rock. Whether this is your first Sunday or if you've been here since the second Sunday this church began, 
you're invited into these four things. Because these four things really are the basic level of what it takes to put on a church. To be a community that's following Jesus. Last week we talked about gathering on Sunday. The whole sermon series before Ephesians, we spent three weeks talking about the importance and, and the value and the why behind community. Later on in this series, we're going to talk about serving and how God's gifted each and every single one of us with specific gifts, specific ways that we are called to the body. And if you are following along really closely, you'll realize there's one left that we're going to cover today which is everybody's favorite, and that's giving. We're going to close the rest of our time today in less of a sermon and more of just a church report to you on the financial status of the church and where we're at and uh, the importance and the reason why we give. I've been in this role for almost a year now. October, I think it's third, was my first Sunday as interim senior pastor. In that time, in 40-plus sermons or whatever we've done, I've never asked you for money other than to do mission work. I will uh, unashamedly pressure you into buying a necklace from a little kid that wants to go and give money to missions or bake a cupcake and spend outrageous amounts of money on better Betty Crocker cupcake batter mix. I'll, I'll do that. But I've not asked you or talked to you at all about tithe. And today the church board and myself have decided that it's time to just do a, a, an annual kind of an update. We had our business meeting earlier this year and it's time for you guys to just be aware of where we're at as a church financially. Before we do that, I just want to give you a few basics. Tithe is a Hebrew word, Hebrew word it means tenth. The principle of generosity was first initiated in the Old Testament then it is reaffirmed in the New Testament. There is an ongoing debate of what tithe looks like in the New Testament, but the principle of being a generous and joyful giver is the same. The Old Testament focus was on the tenth or the tithe. The New Testament focus is on supplying every need, and this often is much more than a tenth. In Acts, it looks like selling your possessions and selling your houses and sharing your refrigerator so that there was no need in the body of God. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says it this way, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the best part of everything you produce. Then he'll fill your barns with grain. Your vats will overflow with good wine. I recently heard of it this way, is that a leader in our church said he has always implemented the 10-10-80 rule. Tithe 10, save 10, and live out of the 80. Growing up, my mother would take two jars, and she would have our piggy bank, and we'd had a jar that's called the Jesus jar. And she would show us that when I got $10 for my birthday or mowing the lawn or whatever, she would say, here's $9, put these in your bank, and this $1 goes into the Jesus jar. We live in a culture right now that does not value the tithe, does not understand the tithe, and honestly is, uh, does not trust the church with the tithe. And that's okay. I want to reaffirm this at the very beginning before we go any farther. Randy, go ahead and put that slide back up and we just keep it up. Those four things to show up on Sunday, to tithe, to serve, and to community, these are invitations to you to partner with our church in the best way that we feel that we're supposed to be called and doing to fill God's will here on earth. Today, just like last week, is not a shame speech. It's not a pressure on your wallet. It's not emotional and manipulation. I'm not here to scare you into giving or to ramp you so up that you want to give. Emotions do not carry us very far. And manipulation hurts people. Today is just an honest assessment of where the church is and as a believer of Jesus, what you're called to do. We talk about tithes just a little bit in, in membership and in, in gross-ups. And I tell people, they're like, if you don't trust me, fine, go, go give to somebody else. But this is a practice given to us by Jesus Christ. A way to live our life. I obviously am very biased 
in this church financially thriving? It's part of my job. I mean, it is my job. It's not part. <laughs> I don't do anything else. I want this church to thrive. But, you know, before Amy and I started here in a lead position, we were just a participant for a year and a half. We just showed up like you, and we sat in those seats, and I had no role on stage. I didn't serve in any ministry. We were just participants. And in that time, from the very first service, Amy felt the Holy Spirit in the worship, and I felt the Holy Spirit move in the Word. And there was something in us that felt like God positioned us here in this community because we wanted to partner with where this church was going and what God was doing through this church. In that time, I got offers for bigger churches that could pay more and implement me sooner into ministry. But Amy and I felt a call to this church and a desire to partner with what God was doing in this church. And that call and that desire has not lifted. And so we're here to see that those things not only become accomplished, but that we thrive and grow into the next season that we're supposed to be. So I am incredibly biased about the tithe. But I'm willing to share that honestly with you and to tell you why. Tithing is like a seed. Tithing, honestly, it's not exciting. Tithing is a practice that we grow into. It's one of those small, little, insignificant practices that it feels insignificant. But over time and space, God is watering that obedience to grow something in you. It's so much easier often to give to things like uh, kids going to camp or to missionaries. You guys were so incredibly generous when the war broke out in Ukraine and the giving that we sent to the missionaries and refugee support there. Our church has always been incredibly, incredibly generous. Giving to the food pantry and to the benevolence to cover people in our church and our community that can't cover their own gas or electricity from time to time. You show up. Tithe is not exciting like that, but can I tell you that it's really, really, really nice on a cold day to come into a warm building. And it's really, really, really nice to worship with lights on, because we've done it when the lights have gone out before. And I can tell you it's a completely different service. It's really nice to pay our utility bills. It's not something that you brag about at dinner. Yep, I went for the more electricity this week than the less electricity. You bought a new car? Cool, I bought more electricity. Not something we like to share about. But it is a fundamental way that we build the church and believe that that's the system that God set in place in this time. Paul has called the church to grow in their giving like their practices of faith. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says, Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. Tithing is like a seed in the kingdom of God. It's a small practice that over time and consistency and obediently, it shapes and directs our life around the kingdom of God. It's a constant reminder not to drift, but to prioritize your life around the kingdom of God. Tithe positions you to receive from God. It's not a magic spell. It doesn't command God to do your bidding. But the basic idea from our time together today is that you must position yourself to receive the blessings from God, to receive the full impact of the kingdom of God in your life. Tithing is a practice that consistently and frequently and physically surrenders control over our lives and puts trust in Jesus. In his teaching on money in Matthew 6, Jesus says, So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all of your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Not everything we want. Honestly, there's a couple things in my life that I would want but financially, I can't back up those once right now. Does that mean that I sacrifice the tithe? Biblically, I would tell you no. Part of the curse when sin came into this world was a desire to rule and to control our lives. When you tithe, you are actively trusting God 
you're actively believing that he cares about you, that he really will do what scripture says he will do. You are putting control into God's hand over your life when you give the tithe. It's a famous prophet, Carrie Underwood, says it this way, Jesus, take the wheel. Blessing follows obedience, and obedience to God and your finances positions you, does not force, but puts you in a place to receive the full blessing of God. Malachi 3, 10 through 12 says it this way, bring all the tithes in the storehouses so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heavens, uh, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heavens for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine, because they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Church, one comedian talks about finances this way. He says he, and we're going to spend a few minutes here, so I, I know we're getting close on time, but I knew this from the beginning, so just stick with me. This is where we need to be today. This comedian talks about growing up, and I don't know if you grew up in this household, but I did. He said he went to turn up the heat, but his father stopped him, and he told him to go put on another layer of clothing. He said, man, I'm already, I'm already wearing my only other sweater. As he's walking away, he mumbles under his breath. He says, I hate being poor. His father stopped him and he said, son, do not use that word. Poor is a mentality. It's a mentality that once you start believing, it's very, very hard to stop believing. Son, you're not poor. Son, you're broke. The reality of our financial season is that it's been very tough on this church. Our church in the last year went through a transition season from the founding pastor of 22 years here. I'm the second pastor to take that position. With that came a predicted shift in our Sunday attendance. Many people left. Most of you stayed. And many people have come since and transitioned here to call this their church home. Honestly, numerically, our attendance has been very stable. When we talk to other pastors and church leaders, they say that our church in a year of transition has shown that we are a healthy and stable and growing church in the place that we're supposed to be, on the right track that we're supposed to be. Amen. Knowing that it would be a financially tough and challenging year, though, we stripped our budget to only essentials. We dropped our budget 20% from the year it had been, which was a shortened budget before that because of COVID. And we did it in a way that would keep all staff employed and not stop any ministry from continuing on. And that's the place we did. We went down 20%. Unfortunately, our tithe has been 30% below where that needs to be to be sustained. It's been an incredibly hard year outside of these walls in our normal lives. It's been just as difficult here, though. This is, I I don't know if you guys travel or go visit other churches and stuff, but for meetings and stuff I do, and I come back and I think, I am so thankful for this building. It is unimaginable that we have a building this kind of size and this kind of land and the resources we do to be here. But with a building like this, it takes upkeep. In the last year, we had to replace heaters, 10, 20, so they're like 12 years old, something like that, I remember. But they're over 10 years old that we had to replace that cost three to $5,000. We had water leaking into our elevator pit that we had to revamp and repaint and pull out rusty pieces and replace that cost about four to $5,000. We had to seal the parking lot, which cost $17,000. In this year, much like your basements, maybe like mine, it's been incredibly rainy. And we've had to chase leaks all over the building, fill holes that cost unknown numbers of dollars. Just like your gas bill and electrical bill, the bills here at church have been higher this year outside of what we anticipated. The financial reality is that we've not just been leaking water, we've been leaking money every week, and we need to course correct. Now, I want to stop here 
and just pause for a second. I feel like there's probably a couple negative emotions that be coming from this. Is One is fear. If you're feeling fearful, stop. <laughs> it's a lot easier said than done, but stop. This church is not closing its doors tomorrow. It's not firing staff. It's not stopping ministries. We're continuing on, but this is a little wrinkle that needs to be ironed out. And if you're feeling anger with me, because I'm bringing up finances and tithe, I just want to tell you that what I'm doing today is speaking biblical truth to you and the reality of our financial situation. And these four things are invitational. You are welcome to come here. You are welcome to come to a small group or a youth group or a class or whatever and never sow a dime into this church. Every person is welcome to come here. But for the deep and the full life of participating in the kingdom of God by doing his will, how we feel that God is calling us to do it as a church, then I invite you to commit to these four things, which looks like showing up consistently, more often than not on Sunday, to be in community, whether that's a small group or a coffee meeting outside, before or after, or serving on a serve team, or giving of your tithe. This is our church. And just like Pastor Brian said, who led me for seven years, eight years, seven years, again and again he would say this, and I take up the same mantra, this is not my church. This is our church. And so the reason, the reason that you need to know this is because you need to know where the financial situation is of our church. Amy has absolutely no idea how much money she makes at her job, how much money I make, or how much money is in our bank account. Because she does not care about the finances, and I do all that. But we do sit down and talk through, this is where we're at, and this is what's going on. Because we have to be on the same page. We can afford better coffee this week, or this is a Folgers kind of week. We all have seasons like that. And this is an informative to let you know the financial reality of where our church is at right now. Church, you are incredibly generous. Every time we bring a missionary in, you've financially blessed them. When the war in Ukraine broke out, I think we gave between three to five or $6,000 to that effort to help refugees and missionaries there. Since we've been doing this, this emphasis on missionaries, our, our missionaries fund has dramatically increased, enabling us to be able to help missionaries that are struggling to meet their budgets because of inflation. We've been able to give more to them. You've sent kids to camp. You've sent teens to conferences. You've filled up gas tanks. You've put food in fridges. This is not a shame message. I do not want to manipulate you. I do not want to force you. But I do want to just be blatantly honest and tell you everything that's going on. In almost every way, this church is succeeding. For the last year, I've had on my whiteboard, success in this season is not numbers, it's depth of relationship. In this last season, I think we've had 14 new small groups start. We, in the last couple of weeks, since we've kicked off small groups again, we had over 130 people involved in small groups. That is close to 70% of our Sunday attendance, average attendance. That is a staggering number for where we have never, ever been that close to being able to track our community like that. Even being here early and being out in the lobby, staying late and talking, our teams have all increased. Kids team, youth team, the worship team, tech team. You are diving deeper into the life of our church. In any way that we can track it, you are saying, I'm not here for a show or performance, but to be a part of what God's doing here. And to me and to the leadership here, that is the success and the direction that our church is living towards. We had a meeting the other week, and I was honestly feeling really discouraged about our finances. 
I hate this part of it. I told the staff, I told the council when they first hired me, Brian was all about the finances. That's not me. I hate it. Don't make me do this kind of stuff. But it's kind of part of it. And so I had a, a council member call me and he said, Josh, our church is growing in the right direction. Everything else is pointing towards health and growth and stability. This is just a small, tiny wrinkle we just have to iron out. Just like God calls us to give the tithe and he'll bless your life, I believe that it's more than just my church or our church. This is the body of Jesus Christ, says the scripture, and he will take care of her. So if you have fear, combat that fear with the word of the Lord. Ephesians 3, 20, 21 says, Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the last thoughts on this before we move into a little bit of altar time today. Tithe is separated from missions or benevolence. When you give to missions or benevolence or uh, food pantry, all of those money is directed towards those ministries, 100%. We pay for the processing fees and everything like that. We, it all goes to the missions. When you give your tithe, that is what we make the church budget out of and how we make decisions on staff and lights and doing events or doing revives, stuff like that. And that's how we make those decisions. And so the biblical call is 10%, 10% of your first fruit. Maybe that number seems insurmountable to you. Can I just encourage you to start? Start where you're at. Maybe that number is 1%. Oliver, I don't know where you are, but if you ever have a talk with Oliver, maybe that number is 50 bucks. Oliver is an incredible, incredible testimony on tithe. Start somewhere. And again, I'm biased in this, but I'm also biased in your life as your senior pastor. Is that I want to see the full blessing poured out on this community. And I believe that we get there by positioning ourselves in obedience to Jesus. We can't manipulate, we cannot force him, but we can show up and receive what scripture says is ours. This is the altar call. Would you just please stand? We can turn the lights down. Honestly, this is not a sermon about finances and tithes today, even though it may really feel that way. Today, our, our time was spent focusing on positioning ourselves to receive the full kingdom of God.